This is Supervised Learning, a podcast where the Merlin Mind team learns from experts in artificial intelligence, technology, and education. We hope you enjoy learning with us through these conversations with those who know. Time to learn. Michael Horn, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you because in many ways, I feel like I'm trying to follow your career. (laughs) I had the fortune to kind of stand on the shoulders of Clayton Christensen, a giant in both of our lives. And I think like that's a lot of how you've ended up where you're at, but uh, I'm now trying to bring innovation to education. And I think there's nobody better that's ever done that maybe than you. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you're at. Yeah, well, look, I, I'm honored that you would say that and super appreciative uh, to, to be on the podcast. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, Clay Christensen, mentor of ours, uh, and he, in 2005, I was in his class at the Harvard Business School, uh, had come in with a public policy background, uh, but had frankly gone to business school to get away from that and get away from the writing I had done before. And while I was in his class, he offhandedly said to me, excuse me, not just to me, to the entire class, he said, if anyone's interested in writing a book with me on public education, please stop by afterwards. And so I happened to stop by, but not even for that purpose. I stopped by to talk to him about my paper for the class. And then at the very end, I said, did you mean co-author a book with you about public education? Like with a student, you'll co-author? And he was like, yeah, of course. Like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to change the world. And I was like, so I didn't come to business school to do that. I came to business school to get away, but I think I have the background to help you on that. And the course had totally, on a serious note, I mean, it had totally changed the way I saw the world, like every problem out there. And just the opportunity to be able to apply these ideas to such a pressing public policy problem, not just in the country, but in the world, really spoke to me and and sort of what motivates me. And uh, so he eventually signed me up in February, I think is when I signed on the dotted line. I I was not his first choice, I ought to add. And uh, uh, I signed on and, you know, he said, okay, it'll take a year to write the book and then I'll help you find whatever job it is you want. Well, it took two years to write the book, not one year. And at the very end, he said, uh, or sorry, midway through, you know, we started this think tank together, the Clayton Christensen Institute. And all of a sudden, I sort of had this decision at the very end, which was, do you go off and try to have another job or you've just poured your heart and soul into something you really believe would help improve education worldwide for each and every student? And holy smokes, you've built this organization uh, and you've gotten grant money from the Gates Foundation and others to go actually build an organization and like make it robust. And that's what I wanted to do when I went to business school. You'd kind of be silly to turn your back on that, right? And so it, it's become my life mission. Like I get up every morning and what motivates me, what I think about is how do you unlock opportunity for every single individual in this world, regardless of age, stage, and so forth, uh, to be able to make progress, to build their passions, to fulfill their potential. And and uh, it just, it's a, been a total driving force for me since. Wow, what a fascinating trajectory, how you've ended where you're at. That's so exciting. So as we talk today, we're excited to talk about innovation and education, right? Clayton Christensen, one of the greatest thinkers, definitely in terms of innovation, uh, helped you get into how to bring innovation into education. Before we dig into what that means and what it can do for education, I think defining innovation is a important piece. Like, what is it? Everybody mean everything. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, innovation is one of these buzz phrases right up there with disruptive innovation and and others, but uh, that it sort of comes to take 
on the meaning of whatever you want it to, to mean, right? And so when I think of innovation, I don't necessarily just think of technology or breakthrough innovations or giant leaps forward. I think of really any sort of improvement that helps us do something differently from what we've done before to get better outcomes. And it's really taking invention and putting it into action. Uh, and defined against that, innovation could be a process improvement. It could be a new technology. It could be just a different way of seeing the world that unlocks different uh, priorities and value propositions that you hadn't seen before. Uh, but it's really that state of continuous improvement in many ways, or discontinuous improvement, uh, to do things in, an, in a novel way that unlocks uh, outcomes and value for people. Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, so then if we start with the big picture in mind, why does innovation matter? Maybe especially in terms of education, yeah. why is it so important that we're talking about innovation? Yeah, I, so I think without innovation, you don't make progress about doing things better to serve more people. Like innovation is is the lifeblood of helping an organization improve and change how they operate to better serve those that they're trying to uh, serve. And that could be, you know, again, small incremental improvements. It could be giant breakthrough leaps forward. It could be these discontinuous shifts that when we think about disruptive innovation, you know, doing things radically different to serve a population you never served before, right? Mm -hmm. and, and maybe it's a more primitive product or service that you're offering, but it unlocks all of this opportunity for people that had nothing before. Those are the sorts of things that innovation enables. And without it, you just, you sort of launch something and you just stay at a standstill, status quo forever. And that doesn't, we, we know no idea is hatched perfectly. You, you need to improve it to better serve individuals and that to me is the real why behind innovation. So let's point that back at education. It's the, so innovation then are the changes that must happen to do things better, to make progress. Do we need to change education? Do we need to make progress? Like, I guess, why does innovation matter in education? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, we could go into the statistics, right? And there's, there's that pathway, which I'll, I'll, I will go there in a moment, but just taking a big picture view, I, I, I think any enterprise ought to be seeking to improve. I think any enterprise, any leader, any person who works in an organization ought to have the humility to say, I know things are not perfect right now. If, if they were, it would be a boring world in which we live. Uh, and we ought to seek to improve to better serve individuals with whom we work. And seen through that lens, I think innovation is an imperative anywhere. And particularly in education, where we're really unlocking opportunity for individuals to learn who they are, to learn about the world, to learn connections and create connections between things in the world that will allow for a better civic society, that will allow individuals and their families to have better lives, that translates to all these values and good in the world, that innovation is important. And then, I, you know, on top of that, you can pick your range of metrics. You know, some people test scores is very meaningful to them. And you can see that a lot of our students, uh, not just in this country, in the United States, but worldwide, are not able to do certain things that we might say are, are basic minimum for the knowledge economy in which we're now operating. Some people test scores don't speak to, and they might look at graduation or completion rates, right? Yep. Some people, even that, they might say, well, that's a fallacy because education is sort of, there are other ways to learn besides formal education. And they might say, well, let's look at incomes and let's look at placement into jobs and let's look at job creation and new innovation in sectors and things of that nature, the, you know, the ultimate outcome, right? Or 
even the quality of the and the fabric of our civic society, which I think everyone would agree is fraying in many ways uh, these days along different dimensions. And against any one of those, education can and should be better to build our collective society and individuals uh, to be the best version of themselves. So it sounds like a race we're never going to finish because if we finished, like we're, we're done progressing. So we need to keep improving. Education pay, pays benefits if we improve for everyone. Yeah, I mean, it sounds exhausting, right? But you know, there's this great, there's a great book, you know, the race between education and technology that came out about a decade ago, um, and it basically makes the point that technology and society keep racing ahead, and education is always trying to catch up, if you will, uh, because nothing around us is static. And so, you know, even if we assumed it was, I would argue we need to make improvements to better serve, but you know, our, our, our factory model education system that we have today, where we batch students up based on their age or, or date of manufacture, and we teach to them, and then we ship them out the other side, and some people have mastered material, and they go to college, and some people haven't, and they, you know, go to maybe career technical school, and some of them just go direct into the economy. That was an incredible success. Like, that sorting mechanism behind that was an incredible success for the 19th and 20th centuries, particularly the first half of the 20th century. But we're no longer in an industrial economy where you can make a great wage as a high school dropout moving into a factory job. Right. Those do not exist the way they do. Our, our world is fundamentally changed. And if we're going to stand still, it's just a missed, you know, we're just leaving a lot of people's lives in the balance as a result of that choice. And so, you know, I, I think that's right. It's always a process of trying to improve and do better. And, and that's challenging. I'd also suggest it's kind of the fun of it. And frankly, you know, as educators, our job is to help people learn how to learn and to help them learn. And part of that is modeling it by learning ourselves and changing. And that's a really refreshing, exciting thing. Oh, I love that. So you mentioned this race between technology and education. And you said earlier as in defining in defining innovation, that it's not necessarily technology. You can have innovation that comes from process change, from new ideas, from new behaviors. What role does technology play in innovation though? Yeah, look, te technology is obviously a force multiplier and, you know, and lots of economists have looked at this way before Clay Christensen uh, ever did. And they would always conclude that there was this delta, right? That would create productivity improvements uh, that would allow you to change the mix of human labor in, in an equation to allow you to do more things. And Technology is this force multiplier that allows us to become more productive, to do things in different ways, to do tasks that we never otherwise would have thought possible in the past. And the really cool thing about technology, as we've observed it, is that it improves at a rate much faster than our individual lives change. And what that arms us with is when you innovate using technology, if you put it in the right systems and models and so forth, it allows you to tackle more and more complicated problems without greatly increasing the cost uh, of doing so. And that makes the fruits of that innovation far more widespread and beneficial to much more of society. And so technology is an, an incredibly important lever uh, in the innovation process. Um, but I, I, I think just to say, it's not the only way of doing it, but it's an incredibly important force multiplier in that equation. Force multiplication feels like something we need. We want to solve big problems. We need to do it faster, better, simpler, right? Cut more. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, and and just to make it personal for a second. So my 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 wife's uh, father uh, was the uh, 
one of the head researchers in the sort of the futures division of IBM for, for decades and then Samsung. Um, he's, he's now retired, but when he was at IBM in the late 80s, early 90s, he was sort of the, uh, the inventor of a lot of the handwriting techni uh, technologies that we now use, uh, to handwriting recognition. And then he was doing a lot of the work on screen technology. How do we create really small screens that you could watch TV on, on your phone? Wow. And it was interesting because I was watching a sporting thing or something like, that, like yeah. that the other day. We get YouTube TV and it's a great way for me to keep up with sports without bothering my family. <laughs> and my wife sort of pointed at me and said to, my, uh, said to her dad, you predicted this you know, 30 years ago. How cool is that? Like that, like, yeah, that it's manifested itself uh, in, in, in my husband being delinquent right now. But yeah, but you know, I, 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 I think that that power of technology is, is, is very neat to reimagine how we do things. So that touches on the human role. So your father-in-law's role in helping see the vision, create that innovation. So we, we see the role of technology what is the role of people in innovation and like being leaders of innovative practices? I, I think it's incredibly important. And I'll say it on two dimensions. One is obviously, as you said, the visioning work, the prototyping, making judgments about what we want to come, what are our moral boundaries, what should the technology do? This is obviously a huge topic in artificial intelligence, right? Uh, for, for big reasons, uh, one of which is you can very easily encode bias in your code if you've not thoughtfully used uh, data and theory to drive something that is going to be encompassing of a diverse set of, of, of people that will use it. And, and nowhere is this more tr true than, in fact, in working with children, where it's actually very hard to understand when they, they're speaking, uh, what they're saying. And so training your, your artificial intelligence, your machine learning with children's voices and children's syntax is incredibly important. Otherwise, you're going to miss a whole population that you might seek to serve uh, uh, in, in so doing. So people play huge roles, right? In, in the visioning, creation, collaboration, and so forth of those processes. The other place that they play a huge role is the development of organizations around them to mm -hmm. put business models in place that make these innovations sustainable and scalable over time. And uh, I think, you know, as we, sort of think a little bit about Clay Christensen's work on this. One of his big contributions is to say, innovation isn't just about technology. It's really about the business model innovation that accompanies yeah. that technology. And people create business models. And it turns out that if you're in a particular longstanding organization and you've been doing things the way you've been doing them for a long, long time, and then this disruptive innovation comes along, something that's more primitive, not as good as the, you know, the traditional out there, but it enables these new value propositions around affordability, convenience, accessibility, simplicity, such that it can serve people who were not previously served um, by the dominant services or products in the market. You as a leader of an organization, you have a choice. The disruptive innovation is coming. Are you going to make the leadership decisions, the organizational decisions, the business model decisions necessary to create a unit that can prioritize it, that you can invest in to go out and be the disruptor? Or are you gonna be disrupted by something that you don't control that maybe lacks your values and know-how and so forth? And to me, leadership, you know, I think a lot of people read Clay Christensen's work around disruptive innovation. They're like, well, it has an aura of inevitability about it. It's just gonna happen, right? You're just gonna get overrun. And my sense is like leaders are incredibly important in disruptive times, 
because they really chart the courses by which the innovation follows. That seems particularly important. Many of our listeners are school leaders, school administrators, principals, very uh, thoughtful teachers. So they are in that role. They are seeing the changes and it's on them basically is what you're saying to embrace and make the changes that make their own classes, their own districts, their own schools better. Yeah, you know, it's a big a big point of mine, which is like when I wrote Disrupting Class with, with Clay and Curtis Johnson, I, I think for many people, it was an extremely compelling vision and they were excited. And some people said, oh my gosh, your pedagogical point on X was terrible. And I sort of would say, you know, I'm not the pedagogy expert. Like if you have a better vision for how to create a classroom of learners or to create a community of learners, each of whom is going to excel, you know, go for it. But I hope that these principles of how you innovate are helpful to you so that you can make the likelihood of you succeeding for those learners far more successful than you otherwise would have been. And that you can use this idea of innovation to make your improvement efforts that much more robust to better serve learners. And, you know, uh, I, I think that's what we all get to do as educators is like, the innovations are coming, whether you like them or not. <laughs> How do they get implemented? Who do they serve? What's the thought behind them? What's the morality behind them? What's the considerations and trade-offs you're going to make? Because there are trade-offs. There yeah. certainly are trade-offs. And I would really rather have a very thoughtful group of educators alongside the kids, alongside the students, alongside the individuals making those choices. So speaking of trade-offs, you could innovate in lots of different places. Yes. Any school leader could choose one innovation over the other. You probably can't do everything at the same time. I know one of your co-authors, I see your books behind you. I was going to lift up your books, but you already have them there. Uh, Bob Mesta, who you wrote your recent book, Choosing College With, uh, he's also a mentor of mine. And he, he always had this phrase of like, every innovation opportunity starts with struggle, right? This, the seed of all innovation is a struggling moment, if, to use Bob's words. What does that mean? And why is that so important in picking where you're going to innovate? Yeah, well, look, if, if you don't feel friction, if you don't feel struggle, then you feel no need to innovate or do things differently, right? Because you're just sort of humming along. And so, you know, they, they always say necessity is the mother of, of innovation or invention, depending on which uh, form of the quote you take. But, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's similar, which is that necessity, that struggling moment, that, that sense that things are not what they should be, that it could be better on the other side. There's a push in my life, right? That I, I can't keep doing it this way, or there's a discomfort that sense that that friction is incredibly important because it causes you to say today's the day i need to figure out a way to do this differently i need to get around this barrier i need to get around this roadblock i need to reach that child i haven't been able to reach and it causes you to do things that step outside your normal routine which is innovation mm -hmm. and that is you innovating as an individual to create a better life for you, to create a better life for your students, to create a better experience for all of you together, whatever it might be. Uh, but I think without that struggle, it's just a heck of a lot easier to, you know, it, like we said earlier, innovation, constantly innovating sounds exhausting. Yes. And you would only choose to do it if you felt like there was friction that you needed to resolve to make your life better. And I, I, I think that's right. Like human beings, 
there's a saying in the cognitive science literature, right? Which is human beings are fundamentally lazy. Like we don't want to put in the work. We don't want to do, you know, working and learning. That's hard. <laughs> it, it actually, it actually burns energy. It's it, like, we prefer to just be in a sort of, you know, on a hammock re relaxing. Uh, and unless there's that friction that's turning the hammock over and creating a lot of turbulence, we're not going to innovate to realize you should put a structure and a, and a bed in place. So the friction in education, where is it? Where is, so I, and I think especially now as we're talking in the middle of post COVID-19, we're all in remote or hybrid or different learning situations. I think we could talk a lot about that friction, but I actually love you to talk more about broadly the friction that you've seen over the past two plus decades of researching this and looking at this. And where are those big opportunities, the struggling moments that rise to the top of here's where innovation is most impactful in education. Here's where the struggling moments are. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, you know, and, and they have to be organically felt, right? So sometimes I think we create uh, friction that doesn't actually resonate on the grassroots level. And so no innovation occurs, no change occurs uh, yep. when, when, when that happens. It has to be deeply felt. And so the most obvious area where you see these, this friction is in, uh, is in motivation, if you will. Uh, and what we always like to say is students are all motivated but they're motivated along their jobs to be done, which is yeah. to seek, su uh, succeed, make progress on a daily basis, to have fun with their friends, things of that nature. And it turns out that the classroom activities that most kids do don't actually intersect with that very neatly. And so uh, they may not have motivation toward the assignments that someone else is giving them. Mm -hmm. Well, that creates friction, right? That creates struggle, both from the students who are perhaps frustrated that they're not doing as well as they might want to, that they're not feeling successful, that they're feeling like failures, that they're getting in trouble, that they're having privileges taken away from them. There, there's lots of different ways to manipulate motivation, it turns out, intrinsically and extrinsically. Uh, and then uh, secondarily, uh, you know, obviously teachers feel all that source of friction, the child that's disruptive, not in the disruptive innovation way, but sort of the calling out way. We, as you put it in the pandemic right now, we feel this acutely where students are in front of Zoom rooms constantly wandering off, switching windows, chatting to their friends. You know, my daughter was in a dance class the other day and my wife came in and saw her chatting with a friend she hadn't seen. I miss you dearly, blah, blah, blah. You know, she's six. But, uh, but you know, those are all moments where we, we see that friction, that struggle to get attention. And so I think that motivation piece, which, which again is, I think all students are motivated, but how to harness that motivation toward the things that we know will help develop them into better uh, adults that are prepared for the complicated world in which we live uh, is the real struggle that I think really motivates uh, a lot of people to, 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 to try to innovate and do this work better. I love that. So on the, on the student side, that aligning that motivation, making it easier to connect the motivation they already have with the assignments or the learning that could happen. What about on the teacher side? We've, we've seen a lot of teachers being overwhelmed, teachers burning out, teachers leaving the profession. Like what is it about teaching that causes so much friction? And what are some of the key, I don't know, early opportunities where innovation can make a big difference there? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many on the teacher side. One, one of them, just from a historical perspective is we've spent the last century plus just adding new responsibilities to a teacher's in a school's job. Every few years, we, we identify a new social ill, and invariably, we realize that education has something to say about it. And therefore, we say, school teacher, now that's your job, right? And so, 
you know, it, from providing a, a menu of courses and opportunities to uh, teaching the morals and inculcating civic responsibility to ensuring learning to making sure reading and math are in place to STEM, like to, to counseling and social capital, like we keep layering on new and new things. That's hard for a teacher. Like it turns out teachers are not superhuman, they're people. And uh, asking them to do all these things is a struggle. It's tiresome. It's it, it, it can lead outright to burnout because it's too much for so many of them. And so that is a source of seeking to do things in different ways to try to make their lives simpler and, 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 and manageable in many ways. Say a second one is like no teacher wants to come into a classroom and have 30 kids not pay attention to them mm -hmm. uh, or to be unruly and disruptive and so forth. And engaging your students, getting their, capturing their imaginations, lighting them on fire to go tackle something that you're passionate about is something that teachers want to do. And that, that's, that's another set of frictions uh, or struggles, if you will, there. Uh, and then, you know, I'll, I'll just say a simple one, which is one of my favorite innovations uh, in technology and education over the last, I guess, 20 years at this point is uh, the company that used to be called Wireless Generation uh, that, that you know, uh, now it's called Amplify. They uh, introduced this very simple Palm Pilot uh, device that did a very basic reading assessment through Dibbles um, in the early 2000s. And the real insight there was simply teachers are already doing this very complicated assessment work of young students' reading ability. Mm. And right now they've got a stopwatch, the text, the writing of errors, looking at the student management complexity to do. That's like four discrete tasks that they have to be doing at the exact same time. And it's really, really hard. If we can just simplify and automate that into one interface and make it much easier for a teacher so that they're not balancing all these different things, we're going to make their lives a lot simpler and easier. And teachers loved it because it did just that. And if you are trying to make a teacher's life harder, good luck with your innovation. But if you're trying to solve something that they're struggling with, that is causing them more time, that is causing them more headache, that is making their life harder to do what they're really passionate about doing, you have a really good chance of doing something that helps them. Oh, that's very interesting. And that aligns really well with the mission of why we exist. Our organization's here trying to figure out how do we make teachers' life easier and bring the best of new technologies into the classroom. So I want to dig in on that piece, especially because I saw some research that you did with uh, Bob Mesta and Thomas Arnett out of the Christensen Institute looking at, I, I mean, I would love you to explain it, but basically the idea that teachers aren't going to adopt all new innovations. It's only going to happen if it's kind of solving a real problem for them and maybe dig into that for us a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So the, you know, the question we asked was why do teachers hire, if you will, big instructional changes in their classroom? Like why would you overturn a way of teaching that you'd been doing for several years, maybe decades in some cases? Uh, you know, what, what would cause you to say today's the day I ought to change completely what I do? And what we so we interviewed teachers who had made such a dramatic change in their classrooms to actually identify the trade-offs and decision-making and timeline of, of such a change to figure out what were the jobs to be done that they would hire, if you will, instructional change for, right? And so putting it into English, if you will. Like, no one knows what jobs to be done mean. Exactly, yeah. no one knows what that means. So uh, why would you change practice? What problem were you trying to solve? What was the progress you were trying to make? in your particular circumstance when you made a big change in your classroom. 
And what we found was that there were sort of four reasons or sets of reasons that people would make this change. So the first one was they, they said, basically, we want to look like a leader in our school community. And so uh, the school basically had decided we're going to make a set of changes. And the teacher would say, I want to be part of that. Like, I, I don't, and they would care a little bit less about what the changes were more that they wanted to be a leader within their school community who was helping rally and show others a better way to do things to engage their students and so forth. The second one we found was teachers basically being very frustrated that they could not hold the attention uh, of their students and that they could not engage them. They didn't wanna make a radical shift in their classroom. That would be too much work, hmm. but they wanted some easy solutions that they could sort of plug in on top of, or in addition to, or to save them a little time to do things differently enough that it would grab people's attention. And they'd often hire technology or videos or things like that to do this. The third one was, in, in essence, to paraphrase, it was teachers who basically said, I'm sick of this. Like I've concluded the system does not work at all. And if I can't radically redo my classroom and learning environment completely, then I'm out. Like, one person said to me, like, I was about to quit teaching so I could go be a truck driver. He had been teaching for almost 20 years when he said this. So, you know, these are people who are disgusted and they like, they want to overthrow the system. They're like, you know, factory-based model stinks. We want mastery, learning, overhaul, student-centered environment. And then the fourth one we found was basically teachers going along to get along. Like the school was doing something and they didn't want to be the uh, one stick in the mud holding things up basically. But they weren't super excited about it. They were they were really doing it out of a sense of compliance rather than intrinsically excited about it. And no surprise, if you're doing something that you don't really believe in, uh, it turn, turns out not to go uh, terribly well. <laughs> but th th that's basically what we found. And on the, the piece where you said they were looking for, basically, I need to challenge and engage more of my students, but I need to do it in a way that's manageable. As we look at what teachers have to deal with today, it seems to be, to your point, we're giving them more and more responsibilities. We're also giving them more and more tools. You now have potentially a device in every student's hand. You have, I think the average was like 1,300 apps used by a district every month. Like there are applications for everything. How is a teacher supposed to manage all of that? Is that, how do you help them with that part? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a great solution out there right now, unless a teacher simplifies and says, we're just going to do this one thing, right? And most teachers don't teach that way. They have a common uh, core uh, uh, curriculum, not, not to be confused with the National Common Core, but they, you know, they sort of bank on, on this is going to be our central uh, uh, sort of scope and sequence for the year. And then they plug and play lots of different things. Like in our day, it was a lot of worksheets or, you know, particular module from a, a, a unit that they had picked up from somewhere else or something like things like that. Now they do a lot of that with apps and things of that nature. And so they're constantly plugging and playing all these things together. And it's really hard to coordinate. And now on top of that, when teachers become increasingly teaching in a blended environment with taking advantage of all these devices, and now students are all over the place and they're learning, that complexity goes from like seven to 11, right? It, you, you know, you're really dialing it up, if you will. And, um, you know, outside of sort of learning management systems and things like that, which I, I tend to think of those as more like course management systems. They're ways to keep track of assignments and sort of the syllabus, but they're fundamentally uh, not student-centered ways of seeing the world. They're not actually tracking learning. They're just tracking delivery of the stuff 
it, it's actually very hard to, uh, to, to manage all of these different things out there. And so I, I think you talk to most teachers and they say, God, I would love something that would simplify uh, the administration of my job to, to take offload a lot of these uh, sort of things I need to manage through. And, and you talk to a lot of teachers right now, God, what they would trade, I think, to not have to reset a password for the 15th time right in the middle of a Zoom session as someone is dropping, jumping on Dream, Dreambox Learning or something like that, right? Like all of that complexity is very difficult. So that brings us to artificial intelligence. Yes. How artificial intelligence has been very effective in many industries to simplify complexity, automate re routine or tedious tasks. How has artificial intelligence been used kind of to date as you've seen in education and what, what have the misses been and maybe like, where are the opportunities? How could AI be used here to some extent? Yeah, so I, I've been a big skeptic of artificial intelligence in education. And, and I think predominantly for the reason that we've tried to apply it in the most complicated of settings, which is to say student learning. Mm. And, you know, students all have very jagged learning profiles, they, lots of learner variability, we could call it um, different learning needs at different times. And to think that you can come up with an algorithm that can maybe at most contemplate three different pathways to track learning and that somehow it understands that Johnny didn't eat breakfast this morning and therefore we should underweight the fact that he missed these questions uh, because it was really an extraneous factor. It had nothing to do with the content. Michael really geeked out on it, but that's because his father happened to talk to him about that very subject this morning. And so he was you know, essentially cheating. Like, A, the algorithms are flawed to begin with, I would argue, because it's so complex. B, uh, the observable traits that you can capture data on are so diffuse that it's very hard to model. And so some people might say, well, let's just create something that's better than the alternative, right? Which is a textbook maybe. And I think it's easier to do that in linear subjects like math. Uh, and that's where we see, you know, Dreambox, for example, uh, takes advantage of some of those algorithms to, to, to do better than some of the alternatives. But I think it's been way overhyped and overstated because of the complexity of learning and all the different things you could choose to learn as well. Where I think it could be useful is exactly what you just said, which is to say, we have a very well understood process. We have a very under, well understood pattern. Let's use artificial intelligence or machine learning to, uh, to, to automate that and to simplify it and to allow people uh, to, to to take advantage of it more seamlessly so that it does not burden them. And those routine processes, it turns out, are not in the learning of a classroom. <laughs> They're in all the functions around the learning. I, I think you could say that they are around the teaching if you think of teaching as very just like lecture driven, but we know that's not the most effective way to learn. Like that creates a very passive learning experience, which the research is not very clear about a lot of things, but the research is very clear. Passive learning is terrible. <laughs> and so it might help automate teaching, but that actually doesn't help the end objective learning. But what's really exciting about it is it could potentially automate all of these other things that teachers, like they didn't sign up to be doing in the first place. So they'd love to get off their plates, uh, whether that's attendance taking to uh, you know, how you hand out an assignment, right? Like all these things that are very well understood. Um, if you can get AI and machine learning to help with that and to be uh, cognizant of the different circumstances and different processes in play, that seems pretty exciting to me as a potential. We agree. 
we think that there's a lot of opportunity here. We're working on it. So thank you so much for joining us, Michael. This conversation has been fantastic. I have learned a ton from you. I, as I was preparing for this, I read a quote from your book from over a decade ago, talking about what was going to happen in the future with online learning. And there was this, this one statement that based on the data, we think in 2019, 50% of high school classes will be delivered online in some fashion. And then I just started laughing, thinking like, you miss COVID. It's, it's hundred percent now. <laughs> so because of your, uh, your prophetic ability, any ideas about what it looks like 15 years out from now? Oh, gosh. You know, I think technology consistently underperforms in the short run, but it overperforms in the longer run. And so, um, so, so that's one thought that I would leave for people. And, and the time horizons in education may be a good deal longer for two reasons. One, it's a very complex multi-stakeholder process with a lot of people who have lots of different interests. And for you to make progress, it's important not just to hit the job to be done, if you will, of you know, just teachers. You also have to understand what parents and school leaders and students and community stakeholders are trying to do as well. And it's kind of like playing on a six layer chessboard. It's hard. Uh, but the other thing I would say is it's, you know, it's much harder also to innovate uh, within an existing system. And, and one of the things I think we missed in disrupting class was the disruption is really at the classroom level within a school system that's established which just makes it inherently harder to change the regulations and metrics and so forth that you're using to essentially the processes and value proposition and priorities of that system. I think the biggest changes are gonna occur in uh, among the 250 million children worldwide who have no access to schooling period. Mm. And that I think we're gonna see major advances uh, in autonomous learning or, or, or technology enabled learning that helps students just become literate and numerate at a very basic level. And um, I think in 15 years time, that'll start to give us some new visions of how to rethink schooling completely uh, that could leapfrog what we do in the United States. That, that would be my prediction to keep an eye on. Wow, what a wonderful vision. I hope that comes to fruition. Any, uh, so if people wanna learn more about your research, I know you are always doing new and interesting things. I love some of your podcasts. Maybe you can tell people more about where they can listen to you, where they can read about you, where they can find more info. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Uh, look, michaelbhorn.com is my website. It's sort of a hub for all the media activity I do. We have a couple podcasts, Future You, Class Disrupted. Future You is higher ed focused. Class Disrupted is K-12 focused. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, uh, Michael B. Horn, and, and a Facebook page, Michael B. Horn, uh, where I do a bunch of live videos uh, about the future. We'll, we'll have you on at some point. It'd be fun. And uh, uh, just people can keep up and then you can always subscribe to my uh, newsletter on Substack uh, or follow me on Twitter. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Supervised Learning. Until next time, keep learning. Keep learning.